Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Luke 1. The passage can be found on page 11 of the bulletin and will also be projected above. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Pam. I appreciate it. Thanks to our kids. I don't think they're in here now, but that was wonderful. Um, Okay, kids, uh, three things for you to listen for that you can jot down on your Trinity Kids Bulletin. There's a space for it. Here they are. The first is always winter and always Christmas. Secondly, uh, the first Christmas carol. And then thirdly, being done with finals. So always winter and always Christmas, the first Christmas carol, and being done with finals. With that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we look at this passage together. <clears throat> Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together uh, would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it is absolutely true. We thank you, Lord, that you've given it to us because you love us. And so we pray that your spirit would work with your word now to enable us ultimately to see Jesus. We pray that we would hear from him today, that we might know him and love him more. And we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen. One of the uh, hallmarks of the Christmas season uh, in the Davis household is... uh, Hallmark Christmas movies on our TV all the time, and that pun is very much intended, okay? Uh, I should say this, it's really just one member uh, of our household that's responsible for having uh, those, the, the Hallmark channel on all the time, which you can do from October all the way through January. Um, and I don't actually share this love of Hallmark movies with this particular member of my family, but I do 100% see the appeal of them. So much of the the beauty, if you want to call it beauty, of uh, Hallmark Christmas movies um, is that they paint this picture of a a nostalgic, joyful Christmas. And it even goes a little bit beyond that because it's not just about the, the beauty of Christmas, it's about life in general. And so the message is basically that while life is hard, in the end, everything's gonna work out okay. 
And um, most of the time, the, the problem or the, the difficulty that, that they're facing in one of those movies is like a Christmas village in the Northeast that's fallen on hard financial times and that somehow pulls through in the end, oftentimes with two really beautiful people falling in love in the midst of it. <laughs> Not that I've watched enough to know that is the plot in every single one. I, uh, I read a, an article a number of years ago that was about the appeal of Hallmark movies, and the author referenced C.S. Lewis's great phrase from the Chronicles of Narnia, where he says, it's always Christmas, or always winter, and never Christmas in Narnia, when the white witch rules and reigns uh, still. And so here's what this author said. If in Narnia it was always winter, but never Christmas, then on the Hallmark Channel it's always winter and always Christmas, at least between the months of October and January. And so that, that there is something that, that is understandably appealing about that, right? That, that there is a part of us that really wishes that life was that way, that our problems were that simple, and that there really was a solution that, that was that, that, uh, that guaranteed and that certain. And the problem, of course, is that that is not how life is. And that's actually one of the reasons that, that I think we really need the season of Advent, and as I, as I mentioned, Advent is a season where we're looking back in celebration to Jesus' first coming, but we're also, and maybe even more so, looking forward with this ache and this longing for Jesus to come again. And it's because we know that, that we, our relationships, our, our families, our neighborhoods aren't what they're supposed to be. And so uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this fantastic quote about Advent. He says this, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. And so what we've been doing during the Advent season is we're making our way through Luke chapter 1, and we've been looking at, at our longing for good news. And, and this passage we're looking at today uh, is maybe the most famous of all. And it's called the, the Magnificat because uh, Magnificat is the Latin word for magnifies, that first word in Mary's song. And, and what's so beautiful about this song is that it is a song that is good news for people who long for mercy and who know they have a desperate need for that mercy. It's for people who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who long and look forward to something greater to come. Because what, what we get in Mary's song is this overwhelmingly joyful response. And it's a, a response to what the Lord has done for her. And so remember we left off with Mary last week at the end of the Annunciation. The angel Gabriel had come to her, said that, that, she was, uh, that although she's a virgin, she's going to conceive and she's going to bear a son by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this child that she would bear would not be any ordinary child. He was going to be the, the, this long hoped for king that was finally going to come and rescue God's people and sit on the throne of David. And, and maybe most significantly, he would be God's own son. And Mary, in this, this beautiful, almost unimaginable act of trust, believes that promise. And she entrusts herself to the Lord. Here's what I want us to remember, though. At this point, she's still in a really hard spot. So uh, we, we know from Matthew 1 that, that, that the angel Gabriel eventually came to Joseph and revealed to him in a dream all of what was going on. We don't know that that's happened at this point, though. And she's still this poor teenage girl who's pregnant outside of wedlock, which was a capital offense in, under Old Testament law. 
And, and Gabriel goes to great lengths to reassure her that this is God's doing, that, that she's blessed by God and that he's shown her grace. But it, it's interesting that in the Annunciation, you don't hear any notes of joy in Mary. That changes in this passage. Because what, what, what you get in her meeting with Elizabeth and then her song right after, which is really, the, this is really the first Christmas carol, is this response of somebody who knows what real joy is. And so what I want to do as we look at this passage is to look at why that is. Why is she, is she so joyful? And I want to answer it in three different ways. First is this, she's joyful because of the Lord's great blessing. Because of the Lord's great blessing. So in the passage we looked at last week, Gabriel had told Mary that, that her relative Elizabeth also was pregnant with a son. She was six months along. And so, uh, and so what Mary does is go right to her. And this isn't a short trip. So Zechariah and Elizabeth live in this town in Judah, which is about 70 miles uh, from uh, Nazareth, where Mary is. And so Luke doesn't say anything about specifically why she's going. He does say this. She goes with haste. And you got to think that, that, that part of this is, is that she wants to see Elizabeth in order to have some kind of confirmation of all of this stuff that has just happened. And that confirmation comes the second that Mary steps into her house and opens her mouth to greet Elizabeth. Look at verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. So remember, Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist. And so John at the sound of Mary's voice, leaps with joy. And one commentator says that, that it's the closest we get to a play date in the womb between John and Jesus. And, and part of what's so important about this is that John's beginning his ministry right here while still in the womb. So John is the final Old Testament prophet, the one who's supposed to come and prepare the way of the Lord and point people to this coming Messiah. And that's exactly what he does here. So Elizabeth feels this baby leap in her womb. The Holy Spirit fills her, and she immediately breaks into these words of celebration and joy. And they're directed at Mary, but they're really words of praise to God. And if you notice, the word that's used over and over in, the, in these few verses is the word blessed. Middle of verse 42. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So uh, a couple things uh, to notice here. One is that I think uh, blessed is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot. And there are a couple of tough things about that. Uh, one is that I think it's one of those sort of Bible words that gets used a whole bunch and doesn't often get defined. And so sometimes we might not know really what we mean when we say blessed. The other tough thing, and this is probably not going to be that helpful to you, but it's hard to read this and not think of the hashtag, right? And, and, and the way that we use that hashtag is to use it as some sort of joke, or we're talking about like hashtag blessed because I got a close parking spot or something, right? Either way, what ends up happening is we lose the richness of what's said here. To be blessed is to recognize God's gracious favor has been shown to you. And here's why that's so important. It's something that God does. He's the one who blesses. And so what, what does that blessing look like for Mary? She says two things in her song. Verse 48. She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And we're going to talk in a moment in the second point more about what that means. Don't miss here that the Lord sees her. 
that he, he sees her in the midst of this wild situation that's full of all kinds of misunderstanding from all the people around her. The Lord sees her. And secondly, verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And when that, that phrase is used in the Old Testament, it refers to the Exodus, to God having rescued and redeemed his people out of slavery. But what's the great thing Mary's talking about, though? He's called her to bear the Son of God, the true rescuer. And so that's what Elizabeth says in verse 43. She says that Mary is the mother of the Lord. And I think there can be some misunderstanding here. It's worth remembering that while Mary is obviously special, right? She has this unbelievable amount of faith to trust what is said to her. And she plays this central role in God's plan of redemption. But she's not blessed because of something that's inherent to her. She, she knows that she, just like everybody else, is in need of the grace of God. And so she, she calls God her savior in verse 47 because she knows she needs one. She's blessed because of the Lord's gracious presence with her. Her savior has come. And that transforms every part of her life. One of the things, though, that, that, that struck me this week is that uh, this blessing that comes to her does come to her right in the middle of, of all kinds of uncertainty and questions. And it didn't immediately resolve all those questions. It doesn't undo all of the complicated and the scary things that are all over her life right now. In other words, this blessing didn't change the fact that she's still pregnant outside of wedlock, that she's still got nine months of the glances and looks from other people. She's still got nine months of people whispering behind her back and saying all kinds of different things about her. But, but, but here's what's so wonderful about this. That joy of the Lord's presence with her breaks right through all of that uncertainty and all of those questions. And it actually brings blessing to her right in the middle of it. And there are obvious ways that Mary is, is unique. But this is actually one of those places where, where our situation maps onto hers as well. How so? If you've put your faith in Jesus, then that very same blessing of the Lord's presence is yours. So one of the ways that, that Paul describes salvation is as being united to Christ. So he, he describes it in Colossians in this way. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Lord has indwelt you by his spirit with his presence right now. And here's why that matters. It can be so easy to, to look at all of those things in your life, the bills, the brokenness, the sorrow, and to think, I don't know how it's possible for me to experience joy in the midst of all this stuff that's going on right now. What this passage says is that God can bring blessing and joy right into the middle of that place. This passage says that, that he can do the same thing for Mary, he can do the same thing for you that he did for Mary. And that's not to, to pretend like things really aren't that bad, it's not like, it's not pretending that things are okay, it's recognizing that the Lord is with you and he's in you. And he's the one who can bring that joy and blessing. So that's, that's the first reason she's joyful, because of the Lord's blessing. Here's the second. She's joyful because of the Lord's great reversal. 
because of the Lord's great reversal. I know that's a, a weird thing to say. Here's what I mean. She's overcome with joy in this passage because she sees that the Lord moves towards people that are totally unexpected. She moves towards, he moves towards the lowly, the weak, the poor, the unlikely, the humble. And it's not what you'd expect because this isn't the way the world works. And so we, we talked some about this uh, last week, but this reversal is all over this passage too. So remember, Mary's a 13 or 14-year-old girl. She's from this no-name town, and yet when she goes to her relative Elizabeth, who's much older than she is, Elizabeth, who is the older one, honors Mary, who is the younger one. And that's not how it would have worked in that world. The elders would have been those who are honored and respected by the younger. You get a reversal in this. You also see, though, uh, you see this in the way that, that women were at the heart of God's redemptive plan. So Zechariah is mentioned once. It's in passing. It's, it's his house that's mentioned. Joseph isn't mentioned at all. And that was totally countercultural and unexpected in that world. And all of this points to, to what scholars call the great reversal. And it's that God comes not to the proud and the powerful, but to the weak and lowly. God comes to those who know their need. And this is all over Mary's song. Look at how, uh, look what she says God does for the weak and the lowly. Verse 52, she says he exalts them. He's gonna take these people who are low and insignificant and trampled on by everybody else and he's gonna raise them up to these places of prominence. Verse 53, he's gonna fill them. And he means that both literally and figuratively. He's gonna provide for the hungry and he's gonna satisfy them in ways that they can't imagine. Verse 54, he helps them. And, and, and this is actually what you see over and over again in Jesus' ministry too. And that's especially true in Luke's gospel. That it's the weak, the nobodies, the outcasts, the sinners, the people that nobody wanted anything to do with who are most drawn to him over and over and over again. Why? Because those are the exact kind of people who know their desperate need of him. And my guess is that, that some of you know and feel that way right now. That you feel like the financial pressure that you face right now is going to crush you if something doesn't change soon. You feel the, 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 the helplessness to fix all of what is broken in your family right now. You feel the, the, the constant disappointment of being overlooked and underappreciated again and again. Jesus absolutely loves to care for people that nobody else cares for. He absolutely loves to show grace to people who are desperate and hopeless and helpless. Some of you uh, will probably know the name Corey Tenboom. She wrote the great book, The Hiding Place. She and her sister uh, were sent to a concentration camp during World War II. And um, one of the interesting things that happened is that her sister, as they were entering this concentration camp, was the only one who wasn't searched for her belongings and goods that she was carrying. And that meant that she was able to carry in this, this small New, New Testament with them. And so what they started doing is having these nightly prayer services in this concentration camp. And one of the songs that they sang night after night was Mary's song. And right before her sister died, some of her last words to, to Corey were these. We must tell them what we have learned here. 
We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corey, because we have been here. That's what this song does for people in the most desperate places that you can imagine. Here's the thing, though. There's also a severe and serious warning in this passage. Because Mary has some really strong words for those who are in power. So look back at verse 51. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And, and, and here's the thing about this, uh, this portion of the Magnificat. There's a real danger to exclusively read this as something that's metaphorical and to not appreciate that this is something that the Lord one day will do. And we need to remember the original context here. We've got to remember Israel's situation. They were the weak. They were the nobodies. They were the insignificant. And there were people in power who were using that power to exploit them and to abuse them in order to maintain their power. And what's so interesting is that uh, there are actual periods in church history when political rulers wouldn't allow the Magnificat to be sung because it was a threat to their power. A couple points about this. One, God is gonna be the one who does this. We've got to remember that. God is gonna be the one who does this. Secondly, we don't ultimately know when or how he's gonna do it. Here's what we can know with certainty. God is the true judge and he's gonna one day vindicate his people on that final day such that every wrong that they have experienced will be made right. God is one who sees the injustice, the abuse, the oppression, and the suffering of our world, and he's not gonna let it go unpunished. That said, that there is this, this sense in which we need to appreciate that these are spoken to real people in really tough spots. There is also here warnings to us Because what Mary says is that if you are in a position of power, of wealth, and abundance, which is, frankly, every single one of us in this room, you need to be on the lookout. This is what Jesus says uh, later in Luke's gospel. This is Luke 6. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Okay, so why does Jesus say that? Does he say that because all of those things, being full, having resources, all those things are bad in and of themselves? Absolutely not. The Bible talks about those things being blessings in in certain contexts. He says this, though, because power, wealth, and abundance is fertile soil in which pride can grow. And that pride is what can lull you into thinking that you don't, at the end of the day, really need the Lord because we can take care of ourselves. We're self-sufficient. In a lot of ways, uh, Advent is a direct shot on our pride because it forces you to admit that you have a problem that you can't fix. You are not okay, this world is not okay, and you can't do anything about it on your own. And that is excruciating to admit. Here's the the beautiful thing about this though. The flip side is that while you can't fix yourself, you have a savior who can. 
One who comes to those who know their need and loves to lavish grace upon those same people. And he does that because of his great mercy, which is the third and final reason that Mary is so joyful in this song. She's joyful because of the Lord's great mercy. And so she mentions the Lord's mercy a couple of times. One is verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him. But then look at verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And that word mercy is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word hesed, which is this great word that means something like God's steadfast, certain, covenantal love. Or in Sally Lloyd-Jones' words, it's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever loved love. Mary is overwhelmed with joy because she knows that God has remembered his promise to Abraham that he made all those years ago to rescue his people. And while she probably didn't know know this at the time, the, the one that she carried in her womb was the ultimate fulfillment of that same promise. The one who would help his servant Israel by being crucified on their behalf. And what was the greatest reversal that the world has ever known. And see, that's how he can show you mercy as well. What God offers you is a status and a love that we strive after in our pride but can never attain. Because Jesus was forsaken, you will one day be exalted. Because Jesus was condemned, you are, you are declared righteous. Because he was rejected, you will be and always will be accepted. That's what God in his mercy has done for you. And the lowly and the humble are the ones who receive it and welcome it because they know their desperate need of it. And here's the thing about this. When you start to get a sense of your need of mercy and you start to get a sense of the way in which Jesus meets that need, two things happen. One is that you become a worshipful person. And so this is exactly what happens to Mary. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord because she is overcome with the mercy that's been shown to her. So John Piper says this, the only people whose souls can truly magnify the Lord are people who acknowledge their lowly estate and are overwhelmed by the condescension of the magnificent God. You become a worshipful person. The second thing that happens though is that you become a joyful person. Your spirit rejoices in God when you've tasted the the mercy of God that is now yours in Jesus. So I was uh, was talking with some students, uh, TCU students, the other night at the Christmas party. They had just finished finals. And uh, one of the things I said to them is that uh, one of the things I miss about being a student is the feeling that they had right then which is the, the, the feeling of being done with finals at Christmas break. It, it's the best thing because there is nothing more that you have to do. And what's even uh, better about Christmas break rather than at the end of the year is that you're probably not even gonna be working over the break. You don't have a job lined up, so you are really done. It's just this overwhelming feeling of joy and of rest. And Walt Horton said, yeah, I've heard that used as a sermon illustration before. At which point I magnified the Lord and rejoiced in God, my Savior, because I knew I was going to do the same thing. (laughs) See, that's what the mercy of God in Christ will do for you. 
It's the joy of realizing that there is nothing left to do because everything has already been done for you. That's what God has done for you in Jesus. It's why he came for you the first time and it is why he will one day come again for you. And he offers that joy to you right now as you wait. Will you receive it? Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us in and through your son. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in him. And Father, we pray that you, by your spirit, would draw near to us, that you would give us this deep sense of joy in the rescue that is ours in Christ, that we would be those who worship and sing because of all that you've done for us. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name, amen.